Welcome to Addiction and the Family, Episode 22, Addiction, the Family, and the Law. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addictions affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. Addiction affected my family tremendously. Uh, it's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction has spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction in the Family, a podcast by and for family members of anyone with an addiction. My name is Casey Arriaga, and I'm a clinical social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mind Out Emotional Wellness Centers. And I'm the author of Realistic Hope, the Family Survival Guide to Alcoholism and Other Addictions. My wife Kira and I were in our addictions together for over 10 years and have shared recovery for almost twice that long. We have lived the experience of being family to addiction as both children and adults. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. In this episode, we interview Abigail Seymour, whose practice Camino Law in North Carolina specializes in family law. Abigail is passionate about helping people navigate the tricky and often emotional waters of child custody when addiction is involved. She offers insight into the issues that come up for people in recovery who are trying to regain custody, co-parents of people with addiction, and grandparents who suddenly find themselves involved in raising children when addiction has struck one or both of the parents. We'll hear all of this and more after a message from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. Welcome back. Let's get right to our interview. Abigail, welcome to the podcast. So tell us, what brings you to a show called Addiction in the Family? Well, I am a family law attorney. I am a member of the recovery community and have been since 1996 and went to law school much later in life after having really straightened my world out, as one can imagine and could never have been able to do what I was able to do in later years if I hadn't been in recovery. So it's just informs everything I do. It's how I was able to get through law school. You know, it's how I can do anything. And originally was interested in practicing immigration law because I speak Spanish. I have a child who is adopted from a Central American country. I was very involved in immigration issues and didn't start out aiming towards things that had to do with recovery. But now I practice family law and have begun specifically working 
with families who are struggling with addiction, whether it be uh, parents who are in active addiction and have lost custody of their children and are trying to regain them, or um, sadly, a lot of grandparents who have suddenly found themselves to be taking care of young, young children because their adult child has either died of an overdose or is in severe addiction and unable to take care of their kids. It's an unusual area that I hadn't realized existed, but I now find that there's really a need for it. So it's a big part of my practice. You've touched on this a little already, but could you give us some detail on the needs you see and the work you do for families when addiction is involved? What do families most need to know? Well, when people think about the law, when it relates to somebody who's struggling with addiction, we often just automatically assume they're going to have some kinds of run-ins with you know, criminal law, and yet there is a huge element to their lives if they are parents, and a lot of young people are, that are hugely affected by their addiction. We have a couple of safeguards in place that people are familiar with. Um, it's called different things in different states, but in our state it's called the Department of Social Services. And we have something called Child Protective Services. It's a federal program that has been modified state to state. It's really when you've got a situation where, where someone truly is not able to care for a child um, and there's nobody else in the family who can or there's just not enough of a, of a safety net within a family. <clears throat> that is often what we deal with with people in, in very severe situations of addiction, but for the most part, the state is looking for other family members to assist in taking care of children while somebody is in recovery. The good news is, is the way the law is written is truly a way of supporting somebody who's in recovery because the goal is reunification. We also have family drug court in our state. Um, it's not as prevalent in each county as just a regular drug treatment court where you would go and have your charges could be dropped if you were to participate completely in that program. But with family court, it's sort of the same thing. If you're at risk of losing your children, you could go through a program that's kind of a marriage between a recovery, rehab, 12-step situation plus a legal process. And if you were to complete the 12 weeks and make sure you met with your sponsor and a therapist and go through all these different things, then you're reunited with your kids without having to go through any other kinds of separation from your children. So there are just different ways that it touches a family. And sometimes it's grandparents versus adult child who's the addict. And that can seem um, adversarial, but a lot of times the addict understands that that's what needs to happen in order for the children to go where they need to be to be safe. Um, but then sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes we represent the addict who's trying to get the child back from another family member, and he or she is um, really working the program, they're really doing well. Um, the law supports that, but the system is sometimes really slow and it's hard to get it adjudicated. I just really love working with people who are really trying to work their program and do what's right for their children, which is to take care of themselves. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you personally connect with and got into this work. Well, I am a parent. By the grace of God, my kids have never seen me use or drink because I've been sober for longer than they've been alive. Every part of my life since I was 30 years old has been part of um, a 12-step community. And so to be able to meet people who are in this place, and sometimes they come to me, they have no idea. We do put on our website that we are recovery friendly. 
I think the very first client who came to my office for a family law matter was somebody in tremendous crisis. And she said, I, I've been sober for, for, for six months and I just got goosebumps. I was so thrilled and I broke my anonymity and I said, oh my gosh, I'm so happy for you. I'm so thrilled you're here and you know, I get it. And, and from then on, it was just this amazing kind of way to apply my love of the program with what I've learned as a lawyer and be able to try and help that person navigate a world that they don't really understand, but that I can kind of speak that language to. So, you know, I just think there's an interesting place for a recovery-minded person in the law because I find judges too, by the way, even though many of them are not in recovery, they love what recovery can do for people. They encourage it. I don't see a stigma within the legal system as much as one would imagine. I feel like they really are excited to see people get well. That makes me just proud to be part of it and, and proud to see people get, get better. I, I love Anne Lamott, and Anne Lamott said, everybody loves a great resurrection story. <laughs> when I work with people in recovery, it's just, that's part of the process. You know, they to be part of them reuniting with a family as they get better is, is a wonderful thing to be part of. And you get to be part of that resurrection story and help guide people through it. They are in charge of their story. There was a woman I represented who wasn't sure what to do next. She wasn't sure she should go to rehab. And I just, I remember saying to her, like, the person who has got the most power in this case is you. Because the longer you stay clean and sober and the longer you keep moving forward and doing what's right for you, the better the story is going to turn out. Even though in that stressful moment, you feel like I should be doing X, Y, and Z, you know, it's all about the long game when it's about sobriety because the, the, the more well and the more sane we all become, the better we're going to be for our kids anyway. So it's wonderful to witness, but it's it's just a story I get to watch. I don't feel like I'm part of it in that sense. I just get to, get to be witness. Well, I hear your message there as being similar to how a mentor or a sponsor might remind someone that they are in charge of their own recovery. But at the same time, there's a metaphor I use when working with my clients when I say to them, you're the athlete and I'm the coach. Mm -hmm. So I can suggest and guide, but it will be up to them what they do with those suggestions and that guidance. When it comes down to it, they'll get the glory and the rewards as they should. But we all know that a great coach can make a difference. Yes. So Abigail, it sounds like Sometimes you get to be that coach because, as you said, a lot of people come into the legal system. They may have run into it through criminal charges around alcohol and other drugs. But especially when it comes to family law, they don't know how to navigate that system. And so that's where you come in. Yeah. I think what's fascinating about it is that what we learn is patience and that there is a sense of urgency when you've got something that's a crisis legally that's happening in that moment. But what I have learned over time is just that time is our friend because the fog clears and you can make better decisions and more will be revealed as time goes forward. And that even though somebody is in agony because they've been separated from their child for six months or eight months or a year, you know, what we can see is, you know, we're talking about being reunited for the rest of your child's life. Let's, let's just remember that that's what we're focusing on and that that means if you can just be patient and focus on today and focus on yourself and on your recovery, then that will come to pass. And that is a sort of kind of a coaching thought, I suppose, because it's not really legal advice when I'm speaking to somebody in those terms, but that is where understanding 
the long-term benefits of staying clean and sober are a huge help in making those recommendations. Yeah, I've worked with clients who are struggling with criminal cases who get frustrated or discouraged because their case gets pushed back often multiple times. And I'm like, no, time is on your side because every time it gets pushed back, you have that much longer that you're sober. So when you go in front of a judge and you have six months sober versus nine months sober versus a year sober, each one of those is going to look more impressive. A hundred percent. That's very much the same thing that I've said too. Um, and we have the same delays in our system where we'll be all ready to get a hearing and then it gets pushed back. It's, we have you know dockets that are overflowing, et cetera. But one of the standards in our court system for civil court to make a change or a modification to a custody um, agreement is that the person has to prove a substantial change in circumstances that affects a minor child. So if someone has transferred custody to a family member because they were in active addiction, and now two and a half years later, they are much better, or maybe not even that much time, but every delay, it creates that even more substantial change in circumstances. Just like you said, like it's, it's more on your side. If you're, if you're a year sober as opposed to six months, you've got even more changes that you can point to and celebrate, which will help your case. I think that clients don't always see it that way, but that's, that's okay. That's why we're there to say, no, we, we promise this is better. I promise. Well, everyone wants to get reunited with their children as quickly as possible, I imagine. But people with addiction have been known to struggle with delayed gratification. Uh, yes, yes, this is true. Um, and sometimes I have to remind people who are on the other side, let's just say, I, I've also represented parents where the other parent is in active addiction. I just had a case like this the other day where the person didn't come because he was in rehab. And so my client luckily was loving and generous and wants her child to have a relationship with her father. But I often remind them, I say, we need our children to have two functional parents. We want that to happen. We want them to get better because that's what your child needs. Yeah, I had a really beautiful moment earlier today. A client of mine, their spouse has stayed in touch. My client had been in treatment fairly long term, struggled a bunch when they left, went back out into using street drugs. It was looking pretty dire. We were all crossing our fingers that they were even going to live. Luckily, they made it back home, having come from another state. The family ended up reuniting. Now I'd say once a month or so, I get pictures of both parents together with their young child. The kid is up on my client's shoulders, and I'm like, this is an amazing miracle. You can never tell what's going to happen, but seeing these stories of families reunited is worth all the effort that goes in from everyone. I imagine you must hear back from your clients after you're done with your official role in their process. I do, and I really encourage them to stay in touch with us. We have all the birthdays written down for their kids, and we send them little cards, and sometimes the kids have come in and drawn pictures for us, which we keep on the wall. So, I mean, we really try to maintain a relationship for the long term. We hope they don't ever become clients again, because that means they've had something go wrong with their family. but. We want to have them stay in touch with us. And there's just nothing that makes me happier than seeing a picture that somebody shares of them with their children. It's just a wonderful thing that we can keep for ourselves here in the office and, um, and celebrate with them. But it, it's so meaningful. It's, you know, it's the best part of what we do for sure. Well, I imagine what you do is rewarding, but 
no matter how it goes, can be very emotional work. What is that like for you? Well, it's interesting. I, um, I was a writer before I became an attorney. Um, I didn't even go to law school until I was 47. I've been married a couple of times. I was writing a note to somebody today and I said, I buried my sister, I buried my dad. You know, like when life brings you to your knees, there's just a kind of fortitude that it gives you, I think. And I did not plan to do family law because when I was in law school, people were like, ooh, that's tough. I have a friend who's a defense attorney said, oh, I'll take murder over custody any day. But for me, it feels very vital to me and it's very close to experiences that I've had as a parent. And I certainly don't think one needs to be a parent to do custody law, but I do think it helps. But I have to practice a lot of self-care. We only see clients and go to court four days a week. We try to do a lot of things that lighten the mood. You know, I practice a pretty strong spiritual program. I stay in touch with a sponsor and friends. And, um, you know, I just, I need to put the oxygen mask on myself first, as we all do, but particularly with this kind of work, because it, you, compassion fatigue is a, a real problem. And uh, there's a lot of burnout in, in our uh, local community attorneys. People come through pretty quickly and then they say, you know what, I, I might do tax law or I might do real estate law next, you know, something that doesn't have so much emotion. What's funny is what I did uh, in my previous life, I was a photographer and a writer, and I did journalism and editorial, but to, to, to survive and um, make money, I was a wedding photographer. So I was at the beginning of relationships for almost 10 years, which is sort of funny. And that was partly why I didn't want to even do family law, because I was like, oh my gosh, the optics are terrible. Like, I can't have been a wedding photographer and then become a, a divorce attorney, but it's there are so many similarities because weddings in the photography world are sort of the family law of the law world because people don't like to shoot weddings because of the emotions and the drama and pain and the, the, the sort of potential complications that there are. And I realize there, there's a lot of similarities there. Um, but for me, it's just all about being of service and being part of a family in a very intense time. It's amazing how many times I've noticed parallels in what I do now to what I used to do as far as the intimacy you know when I would be involved in a family wedding and you just jump right in and you would know everything about everybody and I can certainly remember times where there were parties who couldn't even be in the same photographs together you know and it's that the essence of all of that was some sort of family law case some sort of custody issue some sort of rift I love that I've gotten to see families being built and then also kind of helping patch them back together again. Luckily, not the same families. I don't have any repeat customers. Everybody whose weddings I was part of, for the most part, I think they're all still happily together. But it is a, a funny kind of a, a, a full circle in that sense. I can't help but think that you are sometimes working on a custody case with somebody who's working on their recovery from addiction and they're getting close to reuniting with their child and they relapse. And how do you deal with that? Ah, oh, yeah. I have a case like that right now, actually. The person just disappeared. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because it affects everyone. There are extended family members who are counting on being able to visit with the child when the parent comes back in. And I think people have 
varying levels of compassion and understanding for that family member. It's understandable. Some of them are, you know, ninjas in Al-Anon. You know, they've got, they've been doing a lot of Al-Anon, they really understand it, and then some of them are just furious and blaming, and, you know, there's just a lot of pain involved. But I feel a tremendous amount of compassion and love for that person because they have a disease and they're struggling. But it is hard to go back to the court and say, oh, you know, we were on the road to making this happen. But again, back to what we were talking about, I understand also miracles happen, things change. There's always a new day. That person might get sober tomorrow and start that clock all over again. Or even today they might get sober. So seeing so many wonderful recovery stories has given me the sense that it's never over till it's over. Uh, and on that note, I have, I'm going to two funerals this week from dear friends from the program, one of whom died of liver failure from drinking and another who died in overdose. So people who've been sober for years. So it's, it's really sad, you know, so I'm not, it's not like it's, oh, it's always happy and we all, everybody recovers and everybody's okay. You know, it's, we just, we get that daily reprieve and that's all we can hope for. But, but you're right. So it is very difficult to to understand from the family's perspective that whatever progress had been made, now that clock gets reset. But I don't feel like that clock has been turned off. It just means, well, we just have to wait a little bit longer for that person to keep doing that work to get better so that they can continue their reunification. We never hope for a relapse, but we know that for some people, that is the learning experience they need to be able to get more serious or more dedicated to their recovery program. And that is sometimes a necessary step on the road to recovery. So I often would say, you're not actually starting over because you're not coming back to recovery saying, gosh, I don't know how many steps there are. Or I don't know how smart recovery works. You have that experience now and you can bring a greater depth of emotion to it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. I saw this show recently on HBO called Mayor of Eastham. The entire show is about addiction and recovery and custody. She's a grandparent. She had lost a child who died of a suicide and another one is addiction. And there's a grandparent custody case involved. And there's people, it's just fascinating how it's a huge part of the fabric of this country right now, whether it's alcohol or um, opiates or, or whatever, it's just underneath everything we're doing and somehow touches everyone's lives and in so many cases certainly in criminal law and in custody if, if something's gone haywire there's very likely an, an addict somewhere in the story just because that's how the dysfunction expresses itself it's in all the cases in, in one way or another so true and because so many people are caught up in this each with their own point of view I'd like to get your perspective on some of the major ways people are faced with the issues around family law. There are the people with addictions who are in recovery, or at least trying to be. There are the spouses, partners, and co-parents. And then there's the extended family, such as grandparents. I'd like to hear what you might say to someone who's unfamiliar with these issues and perhaps suddenly finds themselves thrust into them. Let's start with the person who has an addiction. What would you say to them if they're listening to this podcast right now? Hmm, it's a great question. Um, if somebody's listening to this program who is in active addiction and has small children, the kindest thing they can do for themselves and their children is to focus on their recovery. 
and to trust that there may be somebody else who can better care for the kids right now so that they can take that time to get well. That it doesn't prejudice the court against them for having done what was best for their children. Because in all states, even though the law is different from state to state, what they call the polar star is the best interest of the child. That a sober parent is always going to be better for the kids and to trust that that will ultimately pay off in the long run as far as that relationship. And then I've often said this to clients, I'm like, you know what? The court really doesn't care about grownups. <laughs> they just care about the kids. So if you, if you can think about truly who's best to take care of your kids while you're focusing on yourself, if you're in early recovery, then that's something to consider. So let's say that they're either in treatment or newly sober. And of course, wherever their focus has been, what I've seen in my clients is that they're suddenly saying, oh my gosh, the kids, I need to make sure that I get or retain custody, or I'm in treatment, my spouse is leaving me, and I'm afraid for what that's gonna mean. They're gonna use everything against me. What do you say to someone who's getting newly sober and worried about those issues? I think one thing that could be reassuring to people is um, that parenting is a constitutional right. A parent has what we call superior rights over all others. The way that those rights can be taken away is if you demonstrate that you are not acting consistently with those rights. And that becomes when you get into abuse, abandonment, and neglect and things like that. But if you're, if you're saying, I'm sacrificing my time with my children in order to better exercise my rights at a later time because I am ill, it's not like possession is nine-tenths of the law. Your child is not a possession and not being with them is not going to necessarily prejudice the case against you. It's actually to your advantage to say, I am doing what's best for my child right now, which is that they're gonna have more time with their mom right now or their aunt or whomever while I get better. So I think that that sense of clutching and, oh, I don't wanna lose them, I'm gonna lose them, that you can't lose them without due process, first of all. So it's not gonna just happen. Nobody's just gonna walk up and take your kids away without you knowing what's going on and without you being given the chance and many, many chances to show that you are fit. That's what it comes down to, is that um, those rights are very hard to remove. So rest assured that that's not going to just happen and that focusing on your recovery is going to show and continue to demonstrate to the court that you are indeed valuing that constitutional right and working hard to act consistently with it. Very much so. So being in treatment, going to recovery meetings, engaging in your recovery, those are things that demonstrate that you are acting in the best interest of your child. Absolutely. And if they find that the other parent is making those threats saying, well, I'm gonna use all your past against you and I'm gonna get sole custody, those threats are easy to make, but again, those rights are real hard to dislodge. And a person in recovery who's working towards getting better, the past is quickly flying into the rear window. So you're right, those kinds of threats can be made to throw someone off, but again, once you get down to it, the law doesn't support that. And you know, sole custody, it's, again, it's harder to do. You have to really prove that person's unfit, but unfitness is a vague, term, but it is also not defined by somebody who's trying to get well and going to meetings and going to treatment. That is not the definition of unfitness. This is the opposite. That's the definition of a, a fit parent who is doing what they need to do. Fantastic. So now I want to switch to the co-parent's point of view. 
If somebody is married or has had a child with someone who struggles with addiction, either active or in recovery, they're coming into your office saying, what can I do? What do you tell them? Well, a lot of times people fantasize about being able to say, um, I'm going to terminate that person's rights, just like we were saying. I never want them to see their child again. And it's sometimes our job to, to sort of dis disavow them of that idea because it's just not possible. So what the parent can do to protect the child is to request the sort of the minimum time that a person would get with a child would be under what we call supervised visitation. And that's often where someone's going to start. And I think it's important to know that there is some humility involved in that. In our state, you have to pay to go to a state run kind of just a nice, lovely little house. But they have cameras and they have people taking notes and they have signing in, signing out. And it costs us like $75 an hour. It's pretty intense and it's pretty humbling. But the parent, who would be the one anxious about all this, can rest assured their child is completely safe, they are in a place that is supervised, and then what may happen is maybe those supervised visitations would graduate to maybe a family member supervising. You know, just for the afternoon, they're going to be at grandparents' house or an aunt's house, and they're going to have dinner with that parent who's just gotten out of uh, treatment, let's just say. So. That's the minimum that they're going to get, but it's important to know they're not going to get nothing because it's better for the child to have contact with both parents, no matter what their state of mind is. But again, it goes back to what we're saying. That all depends on that recovering, recovering person. So it's just like anything else. It, it starts with a process, but that can reassure that other parent. They don't have to just go and go back to this instant 50-50 custody or, or whatever was happening before, they can start with a slower process to protect the child. And I imagine you must run into some clients who are co-parenting with someone who has an addiction. That person with the addiction is in recovery, say treatment, early recovery for a few months, stuff like that. And your client may not understand addiction very much, may have a lot of fear around it. What would you say to them? I would say this is not legal advice, but I would recommend that you seek out, you know, a program like Al-Anon or do some reading and understand and get some support around what they're dealing with. But again, I would just say that the child is going to have a relationship with that person and to try and help that other party succeed. You know, there's going to be a lot of changes that happen, especially depending on what's gone on in the relationship or how much damage has been done. You know, it's at that point, that's when they need to come and see you. Well, thank you very much for all of that. I guess now we'll move on to the extended family. You said that grandparents may find themselves, sometimes with very little warning, needing to step in. Oh, yeah. What do you see happening there, and what do you say to someone listening to this program who may either be in that position or may see it on the horizon? Well, in North Carolina, at least, grandparents have no custody rights and really don't even have visitation rights which is sometimes very upsetting for people to realize. A grandparent can't get legal custody or visitation unless there's already a case going on between parents. That's a little different from what I'm about to describe, but that's sort of the traditional grandparent involvement. The other way that grandparents often get involved in cases that I see would be in emergency custody. You have to prove the child's in imminent danger of physical harm or sexual abuse or being taken out of the state in which case you can petition the court to immediately issue an order 
this afternoon to go get those kids and bring them to the grandparent, let's just say, on a temporary basis. And then there'll be a hearing in a few days for the other party to come in and go, ho, 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 or not appear, or, you know, it can bounce all different types of ways. But it's a pretty extreme way for a grandparent to get involved if there is danger. And often there is when there's somebody who's in active addiction, of course. The way that I have been dealing with some grandparent issues lately, which I was mentioning earlier, is a grandparent will come to me and say, my child died last week from a fentanyl overdose. I had three clients in one week from different parts of the state, one from a different state entirely with exactly the same situation. It's so sad. And they now have little kids, people in their 60s. The other parent is either not alive or is in jail or is not available in some way. That grandparent can't register the child for school, can't take them to the doctor. They have no rights. So we have um, had a couple cases like that where it's the grandparent against the deceased parent and then the other parent who may or may not be in consent with all of this. In a perfect world, that other parent will consent to, yes, let's go ahead and enter into an agreement that you're going to go ahead and take the kids. Without that piece of paper, without that agreement, the grandparent has no rights to take care of the kids. It's, it's awful. And I think what's hard is that they're also dealing with the death of their own child. You know, the grief of that, the pain of suddenly needing to become a parent to young children and deal with all the issues of whatever age they are. And, the children's grief that they're going through. I mean, it's a it's a very heavy scenario that I'm seeing a lot because of what's going on with the opiates in particular. I mean, all of them have been opiate overdose. So that's sort of the different ways that grandparents can get involved. The main thing is, is that, again, the center and why I love this kind of law is because it's just, it's all about the kids. And it's just about what is going to be best for them. And you can do a lot of things that adults might not like, but we all can agree if it's best for the kids, people will do it. And that's what I love about all these cases is that at the very end of the day, the one thing they all have in common is they love a child. I think that's really beautiful and that means people are willing to go to any lengths to do what they need to do. That is beautiful. Do you actually deal with the kids much? I do. I love when they come in. Like I said, we have little art projects that they do. So they have artwork that they put on our walls. We can't put their pictures on the walls, but we can put their art. So I have some wonderfully abstract, bizarre things that little toddlers have done. And, you know, we have little lollipops. I want them to feel comfortable when they come here. They don't know who we are, what we do. But again, I just love being able to see them. And sometimes it really helps me to see their faces, even if it's just in a picture, because that's what we're, that's what we're fighting for. Absolutely. So to start to wrap up our interview, knowing you can't give any identifying information, can you tell me about a success story that you've seen that was meaningful for you and that might give hope to some family listening out there? Yes, and this is one of my favorite stories. It's still ongoing. I can't say it's like happy ending, but it's a client who's very close to my heart. And somebody who was in active addiction, was incarcerated, gave birth to a child in prison and gave her child temporarily to a family member while she was still in prison. And she's now got several years clean. She's had another child. She's married. She works a program. She does Girl Scout cookies. Like she's an amazing resurrection story. 
and she now has pretty much 50-50 custody with that other family member. Of course, she would very much like to get her custody back. Unfortunately, when a case is filed, that kind of doesn't ever really go away because that person will always be involved with the child in one way or another. But the success of it is, as frustrated as she's been by how long it's taken, she just continues to flourish and blossom and get more time and more of a relationship with her child and more of a joyful contrast with where this whole story started, which was just frightening for her and she felt like she signed things, she didn't understand what was going on. There was just chaos when this baby was born. And she had tried to get clean and sober a few times prior to this. And this has been her longest stretch in recovery and she is just an amazing, dedicated person to her child and understands that the best thing she can do is keep working her program and stay clean. But even though there have been procedural delays, she has continued to nurture that relationship with the family member, even though it's been adversarial, and with her child, and has just opened up the door that we kept talking about opening with that trust, because she was building that trust. It started out with very minimal visitation and has just grown to this amazing relationship and more and more time. So I just love watching her reap the benefits of her hard work with regard to her child. And she's somebody that's an example of the process working and the lobbying in her favor because she meets all those legal standards of substantial change in circumstances that benefits the child. And then she's a great example of how that works and how that does get her where she wants to be, which is to spend as much time as she can with her child. Wonderful. And all because of recovery. All because of recovery, yeah. That's fantastic. So I'll ask two relatively brief questions. Number one, any summarizing thoughts that you want to say to family members, whatever position they're in, who are listening to this? Mm -hmm. I don't have anything specific to the law. It's just what I would say to anybody who loves somebody who's an addict. You know, we, we love them for who they are and we accept them for who they are and who they're not. <laughs> and that we do the best we can to not make anybody's journey any harder than it already is, but that they're not doing something to us or to their child because of, it sometimes feels that way. I know people come in who don't understand uh, addiction and who are so angry at that family member, but that it's the disease and, and that once we have the compassion and love for that person, it can help us really allow them to do the work they need to do to clean up the wreckage of their past, whether that's legal with you know criminal charges, or like I said, having acted once inconsistently with those constitutional rights, you know, trust that they want to gain those moments back and give them the space to do that. And sometimes that means they're not gonna always like losing the power, quote unquote, that they may have over that person, because while the person's sick, they get to say, well, I'm the one who's fixing everything and I'm the one who's taking care of those kids, blah, blah, blah. And when they start to get better, it's important to want to celebrate that too. That means you're going to maybe lose that, what you feel like is that powerful position because it's not a good kind of position to be in. You want to be able to open your heart to let them be fully who they are, clean and sober, and be the parents that they really need to be and who they really are in their deepest selves. Good stuff. And the last question is, where can people find you in your practice? Because I hope they do as a result of hearing this. But if they're in a place where they can't turn to you in your office, where would people look? 
people can find me at camino-law.com and I'm on Facebook under Camino Law and I have a little Instagram account just Camino Law one of the important journeys in my life was I walked across the Camino de Santiago in Spain which is a spiritual um, pilgrimage and it was the year that I got sober actually so I feel it's very important to me it's a precious place of awakening and camaraderie and community and so I wanted to name my firm that and we're in North Carolina and for people who are in other states you know there are so many resources I think um, we have something in our area called the Family Justice Center. So if you're struggling with this and you're looking for an attorney, all bar associations in your state will have a listing of attorneys and a lot of them will be able to offer a reduced consult fee for anybody who calls asking for help. A lot of bar associations will do that and they have a listing of places that will do a consultation for you. You would just find your state bar association and ask for family law attorneys and begin to ask them if anybody has any experience working with addiction. That's probably the best place to start in whatever your area is. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I'm so glad. Well, and I appreciate you being willing to dive into this topic because I think it's really fascinating. And I just think, oh, well, everybody knows about this. But it's, it is kind of esoteric, I guess, now that I mentioned it. But thank you for being interested in it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's our interview with Abigail Seymour of Camino Law. Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about Addiction to the Family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show, or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictioninthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey.